happening? <laughs> hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome to Clear the Haze. Yep, another episode, episode 14. Episode 14, everyone. It's going to be a great one. It's going to be legit. It's going to be the best episode we've ever made because it's the latest one. Exactly. So this time around, we have some fun company tonight. We have legendary 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 we checked oh my gosh we checked the sources oh my gosh we checked we checked the websites we multiple websites this man has multiple websites for multiple successes multiple things he's done in his life exactly for like we're not even gonna tell you we're gonna let him talk talk. richard franklin everyone legendary photographer richard franklin in the building But he's so much more than just a photographer. Oh, I don't know. I want to meet, like meet this guy. <laughs> <laughs> we he's wouldn't right have here. said it if you aren't doing it, man. Yeah. You're you're out here killing the game. We saw your photography. That the space series had us blown away. And then you were like, Oh, there's like four more different entire looks. <laughs> yeah. Like here you go. I can hit you with a little bit of this. I got some portrait photography. By the way, your models I noticed are always phenomenal how do you how do you do it wow. or are you sourcing that's all interesting <laughs> <laughs> observations well maybe make it easier if you will i picked up photography quite late in life i was 40 when wow. i picked up a camera wow. and i'd done a lot of other things and i had a life in which i just took up things which i didn't know anything about yeah and that simply interested me and right the thing about photography i was at a point in life where i'd done a lot of things for causes and a lot of things for other people and I thought, what could I do for me? And I found what the cool thing about photography is you can do it with yourself alone. You can shoot whatever you want. You can shoot it with other people. It can be sociable. You can do it at, in the day. You can do it at night. You can do it outside. You yeah. can do it inside. You can be in the country. You can be out of the country. And I had a certain sort of sense of the immediate, you know, it gave me a sort of instant gratification, which, for example, living in Hollywood, the movie do- business doesn't really give you instant gratification making yeah. a movie i came to hollywood to make movies actually yeah and i realized that temperamentally i wasn't suited to anything that really didn't give me sort of fairly quick gratification and the whole right. movie process is collaborative it's all about you know screenwriting and financing and yeah. critics and depend you're dependent all the time on right. the factors right. and it's a very long process and i respect everybody who does it but i realized that temperamentally it wasn't me yeah and i didn't feel I had any artistic particular sense. I had no vision of anything except, you know, what can I amuse myself with? So I I picked up a camera and I began to just, you know, play around with it myself in different ways. And then I had a girlfriend. I began to shoot her. And then I thought that was fun. And then (laughs) another girlfriend of hers said, you know, oh, you shoot me too. And 700 girls later, um, at least, um, you know, that's been amusing. And then at the same time, I developed you know, began to be interested in, uh, well, what clever things can I do within photography? So yeah. in other words, if you're gonna be a glamour photographer, which is where I made one of my names, if you like, mm-hmm. is that you are, you know, shoot, in my case, you know, shooting pretty girls. It's like sort of Playboy without the nudity. Right. It's like, you know, sexy stuff. It's not, I say that to distinguish it from fashion. Fashion's all about the clothes. And for me, mm-hmm. glamour's more about the, be- you know, the sexy body and right. the yeah. attitude and funky clothes. Just the entire Crazy, it's a whole, them. it's a sort of different thing. Yeah. And I could have done it with nudity on 75% of my shoots, but I, I find there's no point for me to do something. I never wanted to do something that I didn't bring something to the table that, yeah. uh, you know, you 
I don't want to have a life where you can just get away with things. You know, it's mm. all fun. I have no problem with the sexuality of it, but it's also the create what creative things could I do with people was probably more of a turn on than just what I could get away with in terms of that. But there, right. and then I began to develop a whole series of artistic shoots with women that was done, would have done in a very different way from the glamour, so as to give me another way where I could just sort of enjoy just having an entirely different type of shooting experience. And so I did a very large body of work of, which is my website, rfphotoarts.com <laughs> for those interested. And, yeah. my, and my glamour site's RF Model Photography for those interested. But the, uh, and so I did a very large work. And I had a, a very strong ethic that drove me, which was yeah. that I wanted things not to be easy. Right. Uh, and so I set rules for myself. I would only shoot without uh, any, be being helped by anybody. I would only shoot complex things. You know, everything had to be clever, if you yeah. like. And I wouldn't use Photoshop. Mm, right. And so I've ended up doing you know, stuff that in a sense becomes like, if you like, not to push, p p to, to, to pump myself up, but it's more of a like a sort of a magician or a David Copperfield. It's somebody yeah. aspiring, what is magic? It's when you're um, sharing something that the audience thinks, oh my God, you know, how did he do it? You know, well, we know that it's just what they call magic. It's not supernatural, it's not a miracle. Right. It's just somebody who understands to do something that maybe you don't. You right, know? right. And that's partly based on experience and partly about perception and how the mind works and, and things like that. But then after that, I had a tragedy in my life where I had a foster child who I loved very much and I lost my foster child. He didn't die, but he was taken back and given back to uh, his mother, who was wow. an abusive mother, who wow, had, wow. Him, I'd been given the child, and I was, but the child was like my, you know, I loved that child as much as any parent could love a child. Yeah. And so I was so upset that for a year I simply refused to see anybody. So I retreated to my studio, and at the times when I was lucid, yeah. since I wouldn't see anybody, I began to simply play with objects. Mm. And after a year alone, more or less, doing that, I sort of emerged with this entirely novel body of work that really nobody else has done in which um, I call it sort of cosmic photography visions of outer space and I right. think that a lot of it I had no interest when I went into it in outer space I still don't really I mean any more than the average person does I didn't right. watch any TV series I didn't read any books I didn't even go to Google and look at any images so it all came organically from if you like playing with what little knowledge I did have which is so little of the cosmos you know I knew what planet Earth looked like, and right. I sort of knew what the moon looked like, and Mars, and I had a sense of the nebula from Star Trek or from the Hubble, you know, it didn't really matter where it came from, you yeah. get these visions, and I began to play with objects and found that I could create grandiose visions of outer space that, that looked quite frequently like the Hubble or like what NASA's pictures looked like landing on the moon and things like that, and the joy for me was to do it uh, without, again, any Photoshop and to people to come and say, oh, my God, that's impossible. Like, you know, it must be Photoshop. And I got a certain kick out of the challenge. If you like, <laughs> it's like somebody who's serious. You know, you watch this new documentary on we, we watch documentaries all the time on Netflix of, you know, people yeah. like free free climbing. Yeah. Up, right, up, right. Up, 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 and you think that's crazy. You know, why would you? You know, for me, I don't do anything that would risk myself. But people do amazing things when they do them because of the challenge. So for me, the complexity in the photography was the same challenge, I guess, of somebody who w does things that I would regard as crazy, jumps out of airplanes or climbs mountains, you know, whether it's with ropes or without ropes and batshit stuff like that, yeah. you know, yeah. for me. But for me, however, the complexity in doing it alone and achieving it without Photoshop that 
gives people a sense of, wow, you know, how could you possibly do that? But you can't possibly do that. So you want, at the same time, to share a sort of an uplifting experience, which people with sort of inspires them to say, well, wow, you know, that's why should we be limited? We can, we can perhaps do more than we perhaps realize. And I did it, you know, just without really out any training at all. And no, yeah. great. It's not about your lens. People say to me all the time, "Oh my God, you know, what camera do you use?" And you say to them, "Well, actually, it's not about the camera. <laughs> you know, a camera really hasn't changed since cameras were invented. It's just right. a light box where you capture light. Yeah. What's really changed is yeah. lighting, which is much more portable and fast because we've got things like lithium batteries and um, and also, but the same old thing. It's composition and your own imagination. Right. I I I think I have. I thought of a question earlier this week that I wanted to ask you because I was like, this guy's going to be the perfect guy to ask this question. Mm-hmm. There, there are certain moments where I'll be like throughout the day, not, not every day, but on certain days, sometimes I'll have these moments where I'm just like ready to like outgrow my body. <laughs> Does that make sense? Like there are moments like that where I'm just thinking about like what's next after this. And then I'm just like, you know what? I'm just like ready for it. Like I'm just like training my mind to just be prepared. You know, it's so interesting. But I, I was just like, what do you, what is your take on that? Look, I think that it's part of the nature of any creative mind. And, and the saddest thing if one doesn't have it is to say there must be more what's next what can i do how can i stand out how can i be noticed what's a new challenge i think all of that is mixed together in our brains i think the probably the people i probably would um, think of are the least lucky in my eyes are people who have no ambition at all and don't um you know realize that uh, you know you've got one finite short life and it's fun to know as much as you can we can't know everything but we can know a little bit about things and yeah. try at least to see if you can make yourself stand out in one particular area it's not for the sake of prizes or recognition just for your own achievement you know i certainly didn't do my shoots for any recognition i did them for myself i think you have to have it organically within you i'm a hugely ambitious guy for myself i don't do that anybody else's expense i don't do it for attention but i'm unstoppable in terms of an interest in the world around me and what next thing I could amuse myself with taking on a challenge. And I think that, you know, that sounds like that's part of what you're saying is that, you know, the, but often it can be a disappointment where, where you say, you know, I just do this every day, but there must be more to life than this. And, but that, whatever stimulus there is in life for you to want to um, excel or want to learn or want to broaden your mind, I think that's a great thing. I think the one thing about photography that perhaps I hadn't realized, because it's certainly been the most artistic part of my life. I had sensibilities when I was a child. I loved opera. I loved classical music. I loved going to, you know, beautiful art galleries, all these nice things that we had in London that perhaps, you know, were were a privilege to have. Um, But then I realized in photography, I gradually came to realize that I could create my own enjoyment and I could create things that made me very proud and had a certain timelessness and that um, I think that what I learned from that is that I think the world would be a better place if everybody had a hobby and everybody did have interests outside themselves and nobody can stop you and the great joy that you have the payoff is in achieving you know your your your, a new standard all the time that you have Mm -hmm. a new you know you take on a task like we all do and simply get better at it and then out of that 
other interests develop. I always say about photography, what starts off as an interest became a passion, that became an obsession, that became yeah. an addiction. But all of those things are sort of a healthy type of thing as opposed to just you know getting drunk or taking drugs and that yeah. type of addiction yeah, no so i think healthy addictions well, in terms of unleashing your creativity which is a we yeah. live in a town which of course is famous for doing that was for me an important part of my life yes now well, do you think people are are using uh photoshop as t as too much of a crutch since you I do you don't use it I at do. all I think I, I didn't use it I well let me clear about Photoshop what I did is I never added an effect that wasn't there so if you look at any okay. of my my sites um, and my cosmic site by the way is richardfranklinphotography.com not because of a plug but just for those who are interested yeah. in cosmic <laughs> but the um, but my thing from the beginning was a couple of reasons one I felt that we are living in a lazy world where people simply say whether it's well, in photography, you have to say it in the movies, but in photography, you don't. Well, I'll fix it in post. And then that gradually becomes something that becomes too dominant in people's minds. So I can be a bit snippy with some other photographers who I might either think or occasionally even say, you know, why do you call yourself a photographer? Why don't you call yourself a, a digital artist who happens to own a, a camera? Right. Um, I think that the joy for me in photography is the challenge of doing it through the lens. Mm. And 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 the, for me, if I were, I did regard Photoshop for me as cheating. Mm -hmm. Now it's a bit that's harsh on some other people because they don't feel that way. And I'm God bless them. There's lots of very you know you wouldn't find many serious great photographers who don't yeah. do that. But I chose not to do that. Now part of the reason for that was that you know I can't draw a straight line. I'm not an artist in that sense. So mm -hmm. supposing I. Supposing I had developed some knowledge of Photoshop, yeah. where would that get me? I still wouldn't be able to do the, the things that I do because, right. you know, it's still a form of drawing, if you like. You still have to design these things or, or make it however you do it. I, that shows yeah. you how much I know. I mean, I wouldn't have had a clue how to create. What I did find for me was I also had a very, just a segue into just a way I see the world. I, uh, there is a, they say of Charles Darwin, that he is responsible for the most significant thought by a human, but the most original thought by a human being in the history of the world, yeah. which is basically his, uh, his, his theory of evolution, which is now established as fact. But why do I say that? There's a reason for why I say it, because yeah. I, there's a lot of external influences that are the driving engine every day of how I operate in any aspect of my life. Yeah. Uh, 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 and so I applied, if you like, Darwin th Darwinian Darwinianism yeah. to my photography. What do I mean by that? It's actually quite a cool, complex thing. The idea of evolution is, a very, is, is, is basically this, which is that total complexity, unbelievable complexity, only comes about from total simplicity without an intervening designer, mm. i.e., God, right. which is why Darwin is such a threat to religion, which he is, because right. um, he says that you can achieve complexity without needing an Adam and Eve or a God or, you know, creating a woman out of a man's rib while he's asleep, that type of nonsense. <laughs> yeah. And um, so you can tell where I really feel. I am a right. non-believer who, who absolutely gets evolution, even though I understand that it's difficult for some people to understand it because it's so what they call counterintuitive. Uh -huh. But I applied, I decided to apply that way of thinking to my photography, which is to get rid of the God in photography, which is Photoshop, the yeah. intervening designer. Yeah. So the designer who intervenes between when you actually take a picture and then you interv he intervenes and makes it more wonderful by adding all the things to it. And then you have the end product after that, after the Photoshop. So I was just partly too lazy, 
partly thought it was cheating, partly hadn't a clue even if I'd been, even if I'd learned it, I wouldn't have helped me. Right. But what's important that I would, the only lesson I would suggest to people if they look at my work is that if they understand that that was my thinking, that what I've done in my artistic sites in, um, is more complex than if you'd done it in a computer. Hmm. And that's to me a total vindication of yeah. taking a way of how you see the world and applying it to what you do. A and philosophy I can, of life that doesn't change. I can definitely vouch for that. If you guys watch, or I'm sorry, look at the, the cosmic photography, just some of the patterns of how some of your, your photos ended up looking, like I have, it, it, it blows my mind that there was no photo manipulation involved in Nothing. that. Nothing. And you have to understand that I'm a lazy person, actually, in, yeah. a, in a way. And I, I mean, I have a mischievous sense of humor and I have a part of me that, can't you know has a sort of itch he has to scratch if you like yeah but 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 i don't spend my days obsessing about shooting every day and things like that but on that on that body of work which came about in a sort of a frenzy of partly the grief of losing my child but also getting turned on by yeah. wow if i could do this why not try another one yeah and 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 that, okay let's do another one you know it's like it became a tremendous you know i'm i'm a curious person i was very curious um, but uh, the uh, it all came about by my refusal to use Photoshop. And yes, you look at it, and I and I learned a lot after doing that. I I I, I changed my perception of the Hubble, yeah. which is one of the most sophisticated inventions ever by mankind. I don't know how much it costs, fifty billion or something, to send this telescope up to space. Mm -hmm. yeah. And and also NASA, which is I have a huge respect for our technological ability to go and do things mm -hmm. but strangely enough what i find is what we actually shoot in some cases not in, obviously not in all cases is actually a bit boring right. and what i mean by that is that is that i could look at you know nasa's if you look at one of my series it's called lunar surface which is on my richard franklin photography uh site and you and i did one that looks in black and white it's actually a color picture but it was just without colored gels so it looks black and white but the mm -hmm. and it's sort of resembles to me and perhaps other people, you know, the NASA's first image of when we landed on the lunar surface. But then I shot it in a hundred different colors. And I've tried them. So the point I'm making is that I have unbelievable respect for our ability to get to the moon and take a photograph. But what you actually take is rather dull. Yeah. And, and what I tried to do was to give a similar sense of that, if you like, moon landing thing and shoot it in a hundred different colors. So what you had was a piece of art that you could put on your wall that really looked lovely, even though it was very similar. They, they just don't, they just shoot in black and white, whereas I shoot the same image in multiple colors. And on the Hubble type of grandiose macro vision of the universe, again, I could show, I could show you pictures that the Hubble takes that are breathtaking in their technical ability to, you know, they had a recent one, I think, that goes back about 10 billion years, oh. light years back into space. But at the same time, when you look at it, you wouldn't want it on your wall. Oh, wow. It's sort of rather boring, smudged, and, uh, and, and, and I'll occasionally mischievously go and duplicate what the Hubble does um, and try to make it just prettier than they do. Yeah. Wow. Um, I, wanted to, I wanted to ask you this earlier. You seem very sure, like, you sound very sure with what you're talking about. Um, what does a guy like you... Like, what are you scared of? Or do you have any fears or anything like that? Like, at all? Um, well, if we're going to be personal. <laughs> I, I'm not afraid to be personal, by the way. Because I think that it's perhaps one of the things that I'm proud of that perhaps other people don't share. First of all, I have a lot of... I have considerable fears. I, had, I suffered from an illness involving fears. which was agoraphobia, which is a fear of literally going out. 
Oh, wow. Um, I had panic attacks. This happened when I was about 27. And um, so I'm aware of suffering and panic and fears, um, to probably to a heightened degree more than other people, um, having been through that. And it's something that it's like an alcoholic, that when you've had it, you never forget it. And occasionally it will reoccur. So, so I've had to live with that most of my life. But the best antidote for me for, for those type of things, whatever worries you have or depression or anger or, and all the human things that we all have is a raised self-esteem that comes from achieving something, whether it be getting into working out and changing your body or whether it be creating an image that you're proud of and that you could show other people. A lot of the things that we suffer from in life, uh, anxiety and depression are really, you know, the way we see ourselves. And I don't claim any monopoly on I have much more confidence uh, on a lot of things than I had when I was younger, but it has, you know, I've all all life, and I think for most people is you know, full of a lot of worries and suffering and anxiety, and some people bury it better yeah. than others, and some people take it out on drink and drugs. Um, but I, I, what's been at least important to me was finding meaning in my life, at least. Uh, through the things that I did that were creative like photography where I simply felt better about myself mm. and I, I think that I would have been infinitely I don't consider myself depre a depressive but I've had depression and I think that uh, and I've certainly had anxiety but I think the best antidotes in my life if I look at the totality of my life came from achieving things that I struggled for out of nothing that I'm proud of something that was just the thought and, or an idea that you that you one day was just sitting there and it just popped into your head and we're like, I can make that happen. And then you did it and then it's well, just it's like... it's not that I... I, didn't, I don't think it came as simple as that. I think everything's... You know, if, I'll give an example on photography. The, people will say, um, what is luck? And they'll say, well, it's when... It's almost like a mathematical equation. It's when preparation meets opportunity equals luck. Mm -hmm. In other words, you gradually build a body of knowledge that when certain circumstances arise, you're able to adapt to that, whether yeah. it's to rescue yourself in a, in a dangerous situation or whether in photography it's to take advantage of something you see and then build on that. Yeah. I was a good preparer. I think a lot. I spend more time thinking perhaps the most in, about what I'm doing. Um, I, I, uh, preparation, I, I, I go and seek out the opportunities. I create conditions by which you know, I try and make these things happen you know I take a stand I go on location I, I I bring all the elements with me if I can and then out of each shoot you never I never visualize a shoot in advance I almost uh, uh, my mind is sufficiently trained and I think you can do this with a mind it's clearly spies who keep secrets can do this uh, serial killers can do it you know they don't tell their wives I'm a serial killer yeah. they go out yeah. and do terrible things and you <laughs> like read about BTK. this you know the wife has no idea and same things when people are you know CIA people they don't necessarily tell people if uh if you're Israeli and you're a Mossad agent, which is the Israeli equivalent, you know, I don't think they run around advertising it, you know. Right. Um, so you, people are able to compartmentalize their minds with this. So I, on my shoots, I also lived this, where I would deliberately not think about the shoot. I would deliberately not see what it might look like. Yeah. I can guarantee you on all of my shoots that you look like, I ha all of them had, are entirely what keeps me going is the fact all of them are a total surprise to me. A total yeah. surprise. Now, people think I'm just being modest, mm. but it's actually not true. It's that there's the secret of it. I, I'm not a spiritual person, but I sort of teasingly say that the, 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 perhaps the closest analogy I could make in my approach to photography is what I call a Buddhist way of thinking, which is 
that it's the not knowing is more powerful than the knowing. Yeah. I go in and empty my mind to possibilities. I don't think about what it might look like. I'm faced with a situation where, for example, I've done a lot of very complex body painting shoots. So I've got a person in front of me body painting. Now, what can I do with that that you've never seen before? Right. And, and all my situations are that sort of situation where I'm faced with an object. I don't know how that object's going to turn out in the case of my cosmic photography. And it's that opening of the mind to possibilities without ever thinking of what it might look like. I never spend any time on that at all. People find that. Now, there are other types of artists I'm sure I could hugely respect who have a tremendous vision when they sit down on a canvas, you know, to, yeah. to paint or draw whatever they do, who have, a, who have it in their mind what it's ultimately going to be like. But in my case, that doesn't work that way. I'm not that kind of an artist. Yeah. I'm a guy who reacts to things that happen in front of me in real time. So when I'm f shooting, I actually think of myself as, no, I've never really think of myself as a photographer. I either think of myself literally as a jazz improvisational pianist, in which yeah. it's like I feel that my fingers are dancing on, the, on a piano. I can't play the piano. But I'm, I'm, I've got lights in front of me, and I'm moving them up and down, and I'm putting gels and taking them off, and I'm changing the angle, and I'm taking some away, and, and then I'm playing with the camera, which is almost like a keyboard. I'm going up on the uh, the ISO I'm which is the uh, the you know the lets in I'm letting in more light or changing the right uh, you know various factors of the camera I don't want to be too technical but I'm changing <laughs> the f-stop I'm changing right. the shutter speed I may be putting a filter on the lens it's like you're feeling all the time that you're dancing around yeah. and so when I look back on the work that I've done if you ask me to duplicate it I wouldn't have a clue because I don't know how I did it in the first place right so, right and it's it's therefore and the other analogy for me would be more like a matador yeah. Particularly when I'm faced with women that I've shot artistically, so you're dealing with a human being, and I'm and I've got this suddenly. I feel like I'm confronted. It's the only way I really react. Something's charging at me. Something's right in front of me. What am I going to do? Yeah. And and that's and then my reactions come out through that. It doesn't right. come out through thinking. Right. Now I have a two-part question for you. So you you said you you didn't start doing this until forty. Mm -hmm. So. Mm -hmm. um, I'm very old. For <laughs> old is a, a mindset. Yeah, I'm old, old is a perception. A lot of yeah. sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Exactly. Keith Richards. Exactly. Keith Richards is still kicking better than ever. But uh, so, what were you doing before, if you don't mind me asking? And at what point after once you started doing your art, what what point were you like, okay, I've made it? Like but I are, feel that I've made it in the not in a grandiose sense, but yeah. I feel in in a sense the the enthusiasm for doing it. I I had I think what maybe and I, I can't speak for others, but look, I th but I do think it's likely. If you look at great composers or you look at great artists, there was a a limited amount of, of work. You know, yeah. they, they they didn't produce. You know, most I happen to like classical music. You'll find with most great composers, they didn't write more than nine symphonies. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, actually, how many of them just did literally nine. I know yeah. it's a bit odd, but I mean, Mahler's one of my favorite composers, or Beethoven, or yeah. Dvorak. These are three I come to mind that are very famous. I don't think they only wrote nine symphonies. They didn't live too long um, anyway. No, so. I don't think it's because of that. I yeah. think that. They also wrote many other things. So yeah. symphonies is just one part of what a composer might have written. Mm. But in my case, I think that I had this creative, um, if you like, uh, vision in a particular area where I got excited about in, the, in my photo arts. It was creative stuff with women. And, and I felt at a certain point that I'd done as much, had spoken as much, if you like, or uh, done as much creatively as I could. I think I was also 
are sort of more happy as an artist than some other artists. I think there's a lot of, I can understand a lot of artists are miserable because yeah. they either don't feel that what they do is recognized or they don't feel it's as good as they have inside of them. I was a bit different. I couldn't believe what I'd done. I was yeah. like a kid. <laughs> I couldn't believe my good fortune in having created so much that I was pleased about it. It wasn't a question of saying that other people had to like it. Right. I mean, I was happy with it. And that's, I was that's only set really out to please myself. Exactly. And so I would say to myself, my God, you know, I can't believe uh, I got away with doing, you know, this whole series like this. And it's so successful beyond my expectations. So I'd put a book together. And then after that, I, I after putting a book together of a certain type of work, I didn't really want to go and do any more because I felt that if I did do something, <laughs> first of all, I'd have to redo the book because yeah. it would be irritating to me. Um, but also I felt a sense of achievement that I could move on. So I have managed to do something a little unusual, which is to make a name in three areas, in glamour and in what I call figurative, which is women done artistically, yeah. and in my cosmic. And after doing that, I don't do what I used to do, which is I don't spend my nights thinking. You know, it doesn't, there's no great visions come to me right. about what I could do. I'm aware, I, I always tell people the easiest thing in the world is to shoot. The hardest thing is to be original. Mm. And the hardest, and it's even harder than that to be consistently original. Mm. Now I feel in in the two of my in my artistic areas that I did achieve that. I do have a good sense that I really did that, and I'm grateful for that. I'm happy for that, and I don't bother to do any more. So I move on as my life has always been. What's the next challenge in life? So right now my next interest is in mixing part of my background, which used to be in. I'm the son of well-known investment bankers, brother of a well-known investment banker. Yeah. That was in my blood. Yeah. But at the same time, um, I'm mixing that now to see if I can do something clever in the perfume, the fragrance industry. Nice. Nice. Do something on a large scale. But uh, I won't. I don't want to go into that at this stage. But the it's a it's a it's a serious game I'm yeah. now into. But the nice thing about it is it combines artistic things in a way that I wouldn't have had as an investment banker when I, when, when I was in Wall Street or in London in the financial district, which yeah. is that you're combining a sensory experience, which is fragrances combined by the ability to design. I have that background now in having, you know, being a photographer that I have a sense, if you like, of yeah. designs. I have sensibilities. I have my own designs that I can incorporate. Um, that, and then you can incorporate that together with business. So I have Sounds laid in nice. life the, for the first time, perhaps, the ability to merge artistic sensibilities, if yeah. you like, into a very serious business yeah. uh, thing, um, which I wouldn't have had before. But before I was doing photography, I had come to LA, I'd been on Wall Street in the 80s, and I'd come to LA really to just do creative things that I didn't know anything about. Yeah. I, I, I thought, when I first came, I thought I'd be in the movie business as a player, I thought that I wanted to be a producer, I, I knew a lot of producers. And then I realized how temperamentally, as I said before, that I didn't, I didn't really think I was a good collaborator. And I, you better know what you're not, yeah. rather than spend your life dashing against yourself against the rocks. I yeah. didn't have the patience <laughs> for what the industry requires. Yeah. And so although I, and I also had the sensibi different sensibilities. I don't really get American humor. I don't like horror. Um, mm. My mind tends to be sort of likes English period pieces, you know, the yeah. sort of things that do well at Oscar time but don't make any money. Yeah. But have very, you know, good actors that come out to play with high concepts and that type of thing. And that's not very popular. So, you know, you wouldn't have a great life doing that these days. But the uh, but that's what I liked. Yeah. And, um, but then uh, I worked for, for some years on different things. I 
I produced probably the strongest play ever done on the stage on religion. I, I produced a play in the 90s in LA, which I did three productions, I did two here and one in New York, um, that was very interesting to me of the, I recreated the most famous trial that ever happened in history between Judaism and Christianity. So if you like, I put, I wanted to put the two religions on trial against each other. Yeah, I was sort of, I felt that in the Western world, you know, those have been the two dominant religions and that mm -hmm. it's time that we, the best way to show the very considerable differences between the two of them was to literally create a situation in which you could have the two of them, you know, side fighting against side. each other on stage in yeah. front of an audience, a live audience. <laughs> and um, awesome. uh, that was exciting because it was a real drama set in the 13th century that really happened called the, for those interested, if they look up on Google, the Barcelona Disputation of 1263. It is the most famous right. occasion where Judaism and Christianity clashed for five days in Spain under the threat of the Inquisition. I mean, yeah. it's all exciting stuff. And so that was a, that was a, and I, again, I had this sort of mischievous ideal, which was sort of, I'd never done a play. I didn't know anything about producing a play, but let me produce a play and see if we could make it, you know, very big news. And right. then sure enough, it was on the front page papers. And then I would be interviewed by, you know, radio stations about making the play and acting. I'd go to acting classes as a guest and, and, um, and lecture at uh, synagogues and seminaries <laughs> on this. And I, I think I enjoyed the mischief yeah. of being a complete outsider who knew nothing about the subject really at all, who's being asked to lecture on it to the professionals. <laughs> I think it's part of the English mischievous side of me, which is that there's a big difference. There's a famous movie many years ago called, uh, well, there was a, a very famous movie called Inter uh, National Velvet with Elizabeth Taylor. It was her first movie. So considered a, something of a classic, if you like. And, mm -hmm. uh, and then they followed it up many, many years later with Anthony Hopkins and Tatum O'Neill in a movie called International Velvet, which was sort of a sequel. But there's a, it's a totally forgettable movie. But it has yeah. a wonderful line in the movie, which I always remember that Anthony Hopkins says, is the difference between the British and the Americans is the British are not, interested, are not so much interested in the winning. They're interested in the taking part. <laughs> and I think I'm a guy who likes the gifted amateur. I don't think the world's got better because we pay people mm. ridiculous sums of money to do things that are really quite useless. Yeah. Throwing throwing baskets into nets, kicking balls into things, running across the field with balls. I think I am not, as you can probably tell, <laughs> I'm not a much of a sports fan. I think yeah. that sports in themselves is impressive that people can do things, but I think we waste yeah. an awful lot of time watching other people do things when I wish people would spend more time developing their own talents. Mm. Right. I think America is out of balance. Yeah. I think we spend an, an excessive amount of our time on watching other people's lives. And this comes back again to what I said, that I think you'd be happier if you develop your own hobbies and interests rather than watch other people's. Well, all I can say is the current administration currently, I mean, there was no collusion that just came out. Right. How do we segue into that one? Uh, <laughs> but I'd be delighted. I would be delighted to deal with it, to talk about that. I enjoy that. No, no problem. I mean, personally, what has that got to do with <laughs> kicking balls into nets? But it let's go for it. Popped into my head, Absolutely. and I was like, go for it. "No, no, no." I understand. It was, it was the subtext. He was like, he was like, "I want to see what's up." I got you, man. No, in reality, I mean, I found, I first found out yesterday or two days ago, something like that. I was looking at the uh, on Reddit, and then all of a sudden I was scrolling after after literally talking about it with somebody. Like I was literally telling them, like, "Oh yeah, the report's supposed to come out." And then I get on my phone, and it's like, "Boom, no collusion." And then now everybody's just like, "It's funny because half of the internet was like, well, that's that.' Like that's that. Like just move on." 
And then there's the other half that was like, and it was a lot smaller than this half because a lot more people just accepted it. But there was a couple people who were just like, we're going to keep fighting this until the very end. Mm. We must release everything and everything must be released forever or for everyone. And I was like, I understand your point. Like you, you see the whole Mueller report. You could totally do that. But I mean, you're just, you're just digging. You just keep digging. And it's like, even though you're not finding it, you just want to keep digging. And it's like, where's the treasure at? When do you hit the treasure? Is it not there? Are you just digging a hole for no reason? <laughs> well, let's let's deal with some of this, okay? I'll be happy. You know, All right, since you man. mentioned it, let's let's let's, let's, <laughs> let's 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 deal with some of these things, and at at the risk of uh, of alienating everybody, um, I do have strong opinions as an as an outsider, you know, as a as a immigrant and um, somebody who uh, just sits and watches and is is interested. Um, the country is, uh, is in a terrible state in terms of, I think, dysfunctionality. The polarization between people is at, a, is at a level that one could not have imagined. And it's a huge tragedy, and I think it's also extremely dangerous. Um, when I first came to America, you had liberals. There were very famous liberal senators. Um, now we're increasingly, you've got the left, or the hard left. Um, I don't think you have, the, when I first came to America, you, you had more, so more of a hard right, whereas I don't see the hard right as much as I did. I see more of the left than I do actually of the right these days. We had, there were many leaders on the right, uh, the moral majority, there were people who were fanatical evangelicals, but you don't hear, there's not really so many of them represented in the way perhaps that they used to be when I first came. But there's been this disappearance of the, of the liberals and being replaced by a very shrill left. Now, if one, I'm I'm a guy who believes that uh, the left is much more is, is is dangerous for us. I think that the ideas that the left promotes tends to be things that I think you've got to worry about more than not. Uh, you you know we don't have the money to spend on social programs we want to have. We've spent our capital. We're a country in colossal debt. We don't have the luxury of doing things that people would like to do. We can't afford the things we already do. Yeah. A very large percentage of the country is living off the government. That's yeah. I'm sad for those people. It's not a good yeah. life. It's, no, it's not bad. good for them. It's not good for the country. So uh, we've got a very polarized country. The the uh, I've been uh, I've lived in America forty years. I've refused to be a citizen, um, partly because I cling nostalgically still to being British. Because <laughs> I think the British were, stood for things that I actually admire very much. I am sorry yeah. the country doesn't have the Queen um, yeah. as the titular head, if you like, of the country. Yeah. That sounds an absurd idea and laughable to a lot of people, but it's not laughable to the people of Canada and Australia, where the Queen is still the head of the state and, and, of, of Canada and Australia. I think America has been dysfunctional since its birth. Yeah. And what I mean by that is that I think we've made all of us a terrible mistake where first of all, I don't think you should have got rid of the British because you didn't replace them with anything better. Mm. The British, by uh, the British, evolved into a people who were very anti-slavery. We mm -hmm. we we uh, abolished slavery in 1807. You had your civil war in 1862. Right. You had segregation after that for a good 60 years after the civil war. If the British had still remained in America, you would not have had a civil war, and you would not have had segregation. So what Americans really did was they created a country in which they got rid of, rid of a country which had very good values on an argument mostly to do with taxation, which, by the way, mm. we all argue about all the time, yeah. um, and, uh, and replaced them with slave owners. Yeah. 
Now, for those people who are in favor of replacing the British with slave owners, uh, I guess go for it. Um, I'm not. Uh, I think that this country has done has been yeah. born in a, a sort of schizophrenia, which is that we are taught to revere bad people. I know enough about Washington. I probably know more than the average because I'm not sure this country, the people yeah. read quite enough. But yeah. I mean, this is a very nasty piece of work. Yeah. Um, you read about his treatment of his slave Una Judge. She was an 80, uh, 20, I think she was either 18 or 20 year old slave who ran away at one of his parties when he, when he was president. And she had the nerve to run away with her own body. And uh, this bastard tr uh, hunted her down for about five years when he was the president of this country. Right. And now he may have been a very brave general, yeah. but he was a monster slave owner. And people need to know a bit more about their founding fathers. So right. I think the country is schizophrenic. It has on its, it, it's polarized now, but it's polarized from the beginning. I mm -hmm. want to know how do you have a country where you put monsters on your bills? Uh, uh, you know, Andrew Jackson should not be on, yeah. on the bills. This is a man who killed as many Indians as he could right. and had slaves. I don't right. think, to, you know, it's very hard to respect Thomas Jefferson, great intellectual who was busy fucking his slaves. Yeah. And there's loads of them out yeah. there and he kept them as slaves. Now, yeah. I think Even that still. we are a country born in, you know, born badly, and we haven't yeah. resolved it. Well, yet. well, yeah. here's here's well, what else. They, they refuse. But to I, just just to, just to, just to, just to, so so when we come now, where 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 we've come to, we we've we've come to a point. Mm -hmm. The polarization's increased very much over the last twenty years. It wasn't when I first when I lived in America, you know, when we had Reagan, for example. There was it was much more amiable. If, for those of yeah. us, those who remember the years of Reagan, he made you feel very good. First of all, he made the country feel good, but also he had a tremendous uh, relationship with the head of the the the, the minority the senate the senate minority i think it was either senate majority or senate minority leader which was tip o'neill yeah, yeah and they got on famously they were two irishmen they would crack jokes they got on well we had a right. different feeling in the country i think a lot of the country's problems strange enough stem from mccain um bringing in sarah palin to be his running mate who people like me who were basically republican inclined right. simply abandoned him and said no 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 uh, we may be Republican, but we're not Republican at any expense. And this is a crazy woman who we don't want, who's not up to the job. Right. Shouldn't be anywhere there. So, so then people like me said, "Well, let's you know, uh, let's give Obama a chance, who we we may have felt was not perhaps best qualified, but at yeah. the same time we didn't want McCain and we didn't want Palin." But I think that we got more and more polarized when Trump got in. I put on Facebook. I said, "Look, the interesting thing is going to be, can you have the most repulsive individual, which I think he is." Uh, repulsive to the point that I can't watch him and listen to him. I read what he does and yeah. what he says. Can you have the most repulsive individual be a better president than somebody who his predecessor was extremely polished and graceful and, yeah. and pleasant? Um, can you be a better president? My personal opinion is yes, because I happen to think Obama achieved absolutely nothing. Okay, yeah. And whereas I find that whilst I find repul Trump repulsive as an individual, I don't really have much of a problem with any of his policies. Mm. And hell no, there was no collusion. I, I, you know, if I, by the way, if I was president, I, you bet I'd yeah. want to talk to the Russians. They're a terrifying threat to us. <laughs> and yeah. I, I want to be on the best possible terms we can be, as well as anybody else. Yeah. So, uh, but, uh, you know, I think that we've been very unfair to him. He doesn't make his case any better. Yeah. But I think we're all, uh, the country would be better off if we were less polarized. It's very dangerous stuff, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think the polarization goes back to like honestly civil war times like way back 
then like this whole country was basically founded it was it was founded terribly and it, it was like so such a terrible situation and it just we never fixed it we never like talked about it we were just kind of like now live in this time we won this war you're free and then now we're building a government and you're not like you got to follow these rules now and then it just started getting very complicated because people got greedy and people got evil and then it's just like you get to this period now to where it's like people are people have that heightened awareness of it like they're just like at any moment someone could do some dumb shit and just like try to attack us with some guns or try to be racist for no reason and just start acting out you know it's like you have to be aware that that could happen but at the same time it's like you live in this time where you're just kind of like rolling with it <laughs> you're just kind of like going and doing your thing you're pursuing your own personal passions you know but at the same time this is all in the in the back like most people keep it in the back of their mind because it, it is true i mean it's real we we see it every day it's something that we live in and personally like I don't know. There's a there's a lot there's a lot that you can look back at. I mean, we talked last time about all the history of of this of this nation. I mean, we were kind of going into Abraham Lincoln a little bit like that. And I I personally I I, I agree with what you're saying. Personally, I think we're in a good time right now. Um, there's a lot a good of time. I think there's, that, look, we've we've worried since since the new since nuclear weapons were invented, since the Russians got them, you know, we, and since it was a nuclear arms race. We always we there was a time in history when at least you could die seeing your enemy. You know, you could die with a sword in your hand. I think we have a me generation that didn't really exist in history because we have a subconscious awareness. It's, we're dimly aware that we're not in control. And that, for example, Kim, Kim Jong-un, you know, in a, in a mood, mm -hmm. could technically, you know, send a nuclear weapon and evaporate Los Angeles, which he says from time to time that he might do. And this is not abstract. I think the world is really, really dangerous because of nuclear weapons. I have views about what I think we should do, which is I think we should um, stand up to those countries that are developing them and stop them developing them. And uh, I do. Um, and, and, and we may have to have, uh, I personally believe in my, while I'm still alive, even though I'm considerably older than you are, that we will actually have uh, some sort of a nuclear confrontation. I think that we cannot, we are not sufficiently mature enough not to, and I think evil is out there. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I think it's, it's a very dangerous world. But yeah. what one can do is that one can have a life with that by simply absorbing yourself, as certainly as I do, and yeah. a lot of people do in their own. You know, stop worrying so much about things you can't control, but worry about things that you can control, and begin to creatively do things because we we're not in control. Right. But, well, no, we are not in any control. But know, it's no. and it, you can't expect that there's going to be any peaceful resolution especially when we're living in a country that like you guys said was founded it founded illegitimately i mean well, it's been badly founded it's like it's like um uh, there's something dysfunctional about the fact that we continue to revere bad people yeah they replaced re oppression with that that's worse a oppression like, thing. and we're not even 300 years old yet like we're like 200 something <laughs> yeah, they, I mean, I, yeah. I, I'd, I'd be happy. I'm not. But what's interesting to me, I, I, you know, I thought I used to think I was completely, you know, alone in, mm -hmm. in this. But it's. But I'm not alone. I, I do. I don't celebrate, and I don't encourage people to celebrate Independence Day because mm -hmm. um, I think that I call it Black National Catastrophe Day, mm. which I think it is. Mm. I don't think we should be celebrating having taken the country from the British and handing it over to slave owners. Mm. 
had they not been slave owners, I don't think I would have had a problem. It's not because I want the British to possess. Mm. But it's very interesting. Why does Australia, Australians are tough guys, mm-hmm. tough country, uh, Canada's tough people. How come they cling to the Queen? There must be something that the British had that they left that makes people feel that they're worth clinging to. Yeah. I think that some civilizations are sort of sophisticated and, and decent and passive. The British had a great judicial system, educational system, very good administrative systems. Um, and, you know, I don't pretend that any of them were flawless, but I think other colonialists were much greater exploiters than the British were. Yeah. I think the French, the Germans, the Belgians, the Portuguese, there's a long list of, of bad people who left nothing good. Mm. But I think the British are, th- are that type of a people. Yeah. So I think that this country's been founded badly. And I, but it's interesting to me that things are actually being done. So under one of the few things that I liked about what Obama said he was doing, and as far as I know it's going ahead, yeah. was to get Andrew Jackson off the $20 bill and replace him, I think, with Harriet Tubman, which it's is... no longer happening. Is that's no longer happening? I it's, didn't been know. Held. Uh, it's been it's held. It's not a priority I, I of didn't, the current administration. Really, I, I didn't obviously. know that was held up. I didn't know. That's, yes. that's sad, because I, I, I ha- and I know that yeah. uh, Trump reveres Andrew Jackson. He's got a picture of him in in the Oval Office, I think. Well, there you yeah. go. But, but, but the um, toppling of Confederate statutes, getting rid of Confederate flags, and also... Strange enough, an interesting thing you may not know, that in Washington's church where he mm-hmm. worshipped, they've taken off the plaque that he worshipped there. Oh, because wow. I think that more books come out where you deal with the reality of his yeah. daily life, of what, he, what a nasty slave owner he was, mm-hmm. um, it's very hard to revere him in the same way that if we, if we didn't have that information. So I think a lot of work of historians nowadays is to uncover more and more about the background of some of these people that we didn't know perhaps as much about as yeah. as we did as we did and when our perception of them changes right uh, and I, I mean as I say, a, a marvelously brave general i have yeah. enormous respect for him yeah. as a general right. but uh, i i'll give you an example of, of what would revolt me about him mm-hmm. that might interest some of the people listening that they may not know but they had the they moved the white house the headquarters were in philadelphia and philadelphia had a lot of free slaves it was a, a, it was a uh, a state where uh, it was a town in which they uh, had a mixture of free uh, slaves. So you had a very odd situation where people would be walking around who were enslaved and people walking around who were free, who were black. Mm-hmm. Well, the policy was that any slave who had been there for a period of six months was able to apply to be free. Mm-hmm. So what Abraham Lincoln, whose headquarters, his, the White House or whatever they called it then, was, was headquartered in, in Philadelphia, uh, every every five and a half months, he would rotate rotate his slaves from Mount Vernon so they didn't meet the six-month rule. Wow. This is a real bastard. Wow. This well, is George scumbag. Washington. George Washington. George yeah, Washington. he would yeah. rotate his slaves so they didn't meet the eligibility rules. Wow. And as I say, uh, he hunted down this uh, slave that they know about, Una Judge. There's a very interesting book written about right. that. Yeah. Anybody should just do Google Una Judge, and they'll see what what kind of a man you really revere. Yeah. I mean, I, don't, I wouldn't say any of the, anyone I know would revere him we don't know enough we know like that basic bs that they outlay for all the students in Mm. the public school system and a lot of the private school system as well and it it does not get into the specifics of his character 
It only well, talks I grew up, about you know, what even he I allegedly England, did. You know, they used to. I, I perhaps yeah. perhaps times have changed, and I and I and I'll defer to you on that. But I, you know, when I was grow, growing up, you know, he was considered a very virtuous man. You know, I, yeah. I cannot tell a lie. Yeah, there was a famous thing about George. Right, Washington, right. That's the way they always portrayed him. And like they flawless. Portrayed him. I, I revere in that sense that he was looked up to, and it clearly yeah. looked up to in America still as you know the founding this father. The, I just what I'm saying is that I think we we should we got to be more. Um, to move forward, I think it's very ha- difficult to have a harmonious country when you keep on pushing in people's face, mm-hmm. people who did really awful things. Yeah. And I think the, the more they were in the background and we didn't spend our time dwelling on how wonderful on their yeah. wonderfulness, um, the better. Well, this is what I will say about this. This is what I was trying to say earlier, but then I like made a way of talking about it. I completely forgot. <laughs> it happens, people. We're human. Yeah. But I, I believe that the reason that I mean, look at the founding fathers, right? Like you were saying, like, like revered. Everybody loves them. Like, they're on our money. Like, uh, we talk about them all the time. They're big legends in history. But they were kind of had these dark sides to their everyday life that you really don't pay attention to. Because all you focused on was the political career that they were doing, right? So their politics was like, oh, great. But then as soon as they went away from that, you didn't see them. Because back then, the only way you could see anything was literally going and going to the White House and like going to a, a press rally or something, and they would talk there. There was no television. There was no nothing. Or mail, like, you know, whatever. But honestly, the Constitution, to me personally, I, I feel like it's very outdated. Because it was made in a completely different time than what what we currently live in. Like, we have the internet. We have access to so much information at, like, the speeds of lightning. Like, I'm sure George Washington was never thinking, like, oh, I could just order something and in an hour Amazon would deliver it. That same exact thing I just wanted. Or, like, oh, I'm hungry for Thai food or Indian food or Mexican or Italian or I want a cheeseburger. Like, boom, I can get that within 30 minutes. Like, what? Like, that was, you know? I mean, the, the, the... but starting off from what the point that you made just just before that, which was about yeah. their personal lives, it wasn't so much just their personal lives. This country has been founded. It was the way of life, a, by, period. By a sort of a, 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 an yeah. overarching hypocrisy, which was to talk about freedom and equality whilst at the same time yeah. keeping people as slaves. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I think that this is a problem we haven't got over and we will not get over until we perhaps, you know, uh, do... There was a number of things that one can well, do. Is that's, you, that's you begin the to, issue was you begin to take them off you your know, notes, and you begin to do a number of dudes. things that people never did until because I, I because we're living with a certain schizophrenia. You can't have this in your face every day right. with knowing what we know. Right. Now I I have a I've given an, anal- an analogy during our lifetime um, for those when I was uh, the, the great breakthrough that came about. When I grew up and for much of my life, you know, we had a terif- terrifying fear of communism under. Um, various elderly, you know, cranky old men in the in, in Russia and the Kremlin, yeah. the various presidents, and that we were all terrified of Russia. There was nothing nice would come out of Russia, mm. and and then you had Gorbachev, who was the first person to give a chink in the armor, first person to indicate, you know, possibly that you know communism with a human face or possibly we want to be friends with you or possibly you know we might change Mm -hmm. if you look at Gorbachev who's still alive and he's now in his I guess mid 80s if not later um, he's never been revered in Russia and the reason for that is he couldn't make that leap to get rid of communism yeah he he realized the game was up he realized that communism wouldn't work he realized that they had to move into the 20th century 
And so the guys who get credit for that are perhaps more Yeltsin, who came after him, and Gorbachev, who's still alive and has never been revered in his own country. Now, the mm -hmm. analogy I'm making is, is to do with America, is that these clever people, the Jeffersons, Madisons, Adamses, anybody you want to mention, I, re I respect them all highly interesting, intelligent people, but they had such a flaw, which is to talk about equality and wonderful elevated things and keep slaves, whereas they could have got rid of slaves. It's a double uh, standard. An important mm. thing to know that, again, because um, I, I love to share little bits of knowledge that I, that, that I think matter to me anyway, mm -hmm. that all of you, or anybody listening ought to go and Google Robert Carter. Mm -hmm. Robert Carter was the biggest slave owner in the states of, in Virginia, in, in, in any of the colonial states. Mm -hmm. And he was related to all of the families, Jeffersons, Madisons, uh, Washingtons, all of this. They were all interrelated with each other. And King Carter, which was his, uh, he was called King Carter, which was his grandfather, was the biggest slave owner in the entire state of Virginia, in entire America, mm. uh, of what was then, you know, uh, it, it was, 13 colonies. He was, the, he was the biggest slave owner. Mm. And Robert Carter, who inherits the slaves, did something some unbelievable, what people simply don't know about. As he, he was a guy who read quietly, and he just wasn't quite the same as his granddaddy, mm. and he decided this is disgusting. And so he announced he was going to free all his slaves. Mm -hmm. And he did. And he spent years doing it. It was a very delicate process how he went about it. He was very, uh, uh, very methodical about how he did it. And he gradually not only transformed, he gradually uh, put his slaves as the owners on all the plantation properties he had and mm -hmm. supplanted the white people yeah. who were there. Now, wow. he then got, you've probably never heard his name because all of the people uh, who were his relatives and the right. were slaves found this appalling. Of course. And so they hated him. And yeah. so he died forgotten. He died actually bankrupt, even though he was the richest of, of, of the slave owners at one time right. because he gave everything away. The point I'm making is that it was possible to end slavery and yeah. the shame on the founding fathers that they didn't do it. Yeah. And I think this is such a flaw that it's up there every day, if you like, as a sort of a indictment. Yeah. And we have to, and it's, and I think it does affect the way we live because mm. once we can put a lot of it, it's rather the same, and I'm an atheist, you see. So mm -hmm. for me, non-belief in God is a liberating thing. Mm -hmm. gets rid of a lot of nonsense because to me religion is so divisive because it says I know the truth and you don't know the truth. Mm -hmm. And whatever religion you're in is basically divisive to any other religion. That's mm -hmm. how it works. So I think that uh, if we can get rid of a lot of the things that we've grown up with, uh, this is not impossible. Yeah. And then we'll be much more mature and much less polarized when we do, much healthier. Yeah, we're, we're all trending towards the same plane of thought. Um, but of course, people will never totally get along because that's just not the way it works. But I don't know. I, I feel like uh, collectively as a nation, we can't move forward until we stop sweeping our bullshit under the rug and just address the fact that, hey, we may be messed up in the handling of the founding of this nation. <laughs> Maybe when we were discussing men and still keeping slaves, we weren't thinking of our slaves exactly. as men. Well, it's another thing. When I first came, when I first came to, it wasn't when I first came to America, but in about 1989 when I yeah. finished with Wall Street, yeah. My big mission for the next three years was I worked on, you know, asked me some of the things in the background before I did photography. Yeah. I was the head of the largest program in the country mm -hmm. on a mission to try and put the teaching of character education, moral yeah. values, ethics, whatever you want to call it, yeah. into your school system as the number one thing in the curriculum. Because mm -hmm. I said back in 1989, the biggest problem America has is values. Because I ask you a simple question. Yeah. Where does character come from? 
Yeah. Where do people learn to be good people, aspiring people, you know, all the virtues that you might think are wonderful virtues? Yeah. Um, where do they come from? Well, I don't think they come from nowhere. If you're living in a country where people don't read very much about other people's lives and history, and if you perhaps don't have parents, and if you perhaps don't have great influences, may yeah. I ask where character comes from? Now, I think the great problem of America is actually a values problem. I really do. Yeah. I think people haven't really got a very good compass of how to live your life yeah. uh, that that would be, you know, to your benefit. Now, right. I happen to think the people, probably the only serious institution I do respect in the country is the military, because mm -hmm. that does have uh, an immense ethic of right. camaraderie. You depend on your colleague. You depend on your fellow soldier. You have that structure, which you're part of. Now, outside of the military, what is there, if I might ask? So I don't think that Trump is an aberration. I think that Trump is a reflection of the way Americans are. Mm -hmm. I'll give you what I mean by that is he, we've maybe collectively lost all of our judgment, which yeah. can happen, by the way. Yeah. Uh, here's a country where this man ran as president, where we every single day we ran, we found a new horror about him. <laughs> yeah. And when you, your mad process in America when you elect presidents, it takes about... Two years. Two years. So you had two years of horrors yeah. to know every single day about something he'd said sleazy and, and some appalling act he'd done to women or right. cheated on his wife or some right. ghastly thing he'd said. And yet, still elected him. Now, that's very interesting to me. That means he's a reflection of us, yeah. that maybe we don't care. Maybe he understood, and I think he understood that very well. Understood it very well. I think he yeah. understands the short attention span that people have, the fact that people don't focus on anything too much, that maybe people have lost qualitative judgments. You know, in my, perhaps when I was growing up in England, somebody who spoke like this mm -hmm. or did anything of this would have been drummed out of politics in five minutes. Right, right. It would have been, it would have been a, a non-option. I mean. Now, we live in a time where you can do and say anything crazy. and get elected. You have Michael Avenatti who got arrested yesterday. He gets a bit of publicity and he announces he's running for president. Yeah. You get um, Kanye West announces he's running for president. Yeah. <laughs> maybe a, you know, maybe we're a country where anything is possible by Celebrity anybody because we haven't got any judgment about anything. Yeah. So I do feel that character counts. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean to say it has to be a stuffy, miserable thing. I think that's probably the most exciting thing is yeah. to find what your what you really stand for, what you really aspire for, what you're going to fight for. And that's like a, 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 a something that's like a ship, that it's like a compass that will always, always steer you, sometimes to disaster, sometimes to great success. Yeah. But, you know, a great line in Shakespeare, Polonius' speech to Laertes in Hamlet, above all this to thine own self be true, and it shall follow as the night shall follow day, thou canst not be false to any man. I think you have to have a large amount of sort of list of qualities. You remember, you remember in Gladiator, where the emperor says to his son, Commodus, he says, you know, I, uh, we, uh, you know, he tells him all the virtues. And Commodus says, I didn't have any of them. Yeah. <laughs> and he strangles his father. But a point is that I think these things throughout history matter. Right. Yeah. And I think we have, we're living in a culture where we spend so much of our time wasting so much time that yeah. has not doesn't bring any quality to our life doesn't increase our self-esteem doesn't increase our character and if we're going to have children what are you going to pass on to them yeah and and what are we, what what are we worth what's worth fighting for by the way if you if nothing means anything that's a very good point what's worth fighting for and i it, i bring up my next question do you think i know you mentioned that at some point you think that there will be nuclear um, some sort of nuclear war, maybe, or a battle, or some sort of strike, or something. 
do you think that a, a second civil war is possible in America? Yes, I do. I, I never would have believed that until in the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. It has occurred to me that that that's that's possible. Um, uh, but let me do the deal first with the nuclear thing. It's an odd thing about nuclear. And, I, and I'll upset some people saying this, but I hope that they'll understand where it comes from. We did nuke Japan. Mm -hmm. We did nuke them twice. Mm -hmm. I don't think uh, there's any hand-wringing, and nor should there be, by Americans about feeling tremendously guilty. I think we were facing, if those people who read about Japan and the Second World War, we were facing an impossible situation. That the Japanese had gone berserk. Yeah. The Nazis had gone berserk. You had an entire country of, of Germany had gone mad. Yeah. And and I think the Japanese went mad. And they were so threatening and so dangerous, they had to be stopped in their tracks. Now, had you tried to invade Japan to try and get rid of this mad militarism that wouldn't stop, it was like the Terminator. You know, they, yeah. were, they were unprogrammed to, <laughs> yeah. to kill. Um, we would have lost, they say, you know, anything up to half a million troops. So Truman decided, no, we're not going to sacrifice American troops. It's a question of, you know, if it's our children or their children, I was rather it was their children. Yeah. So we did nuke them twice. What's the result? Well, the strange result is it was unbelievably positive. You turn this crazy nation into one of the nicest nations in the world. Yeah. And, and I'm very fond of Japanese, and, and they've become a completely different people as a result. Uh, had we had fever. nuclear weapons, we would have used them on Germany, but we didn't have them. But what we did was we did the equivalent of Hiroshima and Nagasaki every single day, mm. which is we, what they call saturation bombed every one of America's, uh, anyone, every one of Germany's major cities, Cologne, Hamburg, uh, Dusseldorf, Frankfurt, Berlin, um, every day. The Americans did it with uh, massive bombing raids at night and we, uh, or uh, during the day, and the British did it at night. Um, and what's the result? The Germans are some of the nicest people in the world. We changed the culture. So uh, the reason I'm saying this is I don't think a nuclear exchange is actually the worst thing in the entire world. Yeah. In, the, in the case of when, we, when it happened with Japan, it, it was an immensely positive thing that saved the lives of masses of people yeah. and changed the culture for the better of the world. Now, it's a terrible thing to say. All those innocent people that died, trust me. But I think you're going to have to come down to some time. America's going to have to get serious and just make very serious decisions that they're mm -hmm. beginning to get an inkling about but haven't quite focused on. You're yeah. going to have a face of time was an existential question. Either your children are going to be killed or their children are going to be killed. Yeah. Because you wait for Iran to have nuclear weapons. They've said for the last 50 years that we're the great Satan. They've said for the last 50 years death to America. Once they have nuclear weapons, what are you going to do? You can't cope with North Korea right now, which can sit there, this little country of 25 million people, and can extinguish Los Angeles or any city if they want to mm. in a few minutes of the whim of their dictator. Try the Iranians that have a death cult that really want you dead. Hmm. And, and I think, I know these are the things, I think these are things that people are going to have know. to face because they're real. Yeah. You've got Putin the other week boasting that he's got hypersonic weapons now that can get to us you know, in eight seconds and beat uh, any of our defenses. I think it, the world is a very dangerous place. Now, sometimes in a, in a very dangerous way, place, maybe it is possible that you have to have something that happens so cataclysmic as what happened to the Japanese uh, 50, 70 years ago, whatever it was, that maybe it puts the world in check in such a state of sort of shock for the that it keeps the peace for the next 50 years. I am, I am not sure. I, I cannot yeah. see us living in a world. If we're finding it almost impossible to live with a nuclear North Korea, uh, try living with uh, Iran. I don't think you'll find that you can. I, I think uh, you can't live with a state that's 
made it clear for the last 50 years that they want you dead. Mm. It's like it's like the same absurdity of, 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 when, of Independence Day when the president meets the alien and says, what do you want us to do? And he says, well, we want you to die. That's what you're, the, that's what you're facing. Mm. And if you don't think so, you're mistaken. Mm. Now, uh, so, so I think that under certain scenarios, if we are bold enough and brave enough and stand up for ourselves and have a point and and which i think to some degree i must give credit to the government that they do i think the government and the pentagon and the military are very aware of the dangers that we face and that we should give them a lot more respect and understanding for for what may have to happen because i don't think i think the world's so dangerously unstable that we have to have a point where we're gonna really have to decide <laughs> what can we live with yeah, yeah at this point um, we're so deep with everyone having access to nukes well not everyone has access but but the but the you the know we are dealing with North Korea as best access. as we can i don't really have a problem with trump if i was uh, in the situation of uh, dealing with him i would rather make nice to this maniac mm. and say flattering things and do our very very yeah. best to, to try and accommodate uh, up to a point well, yeah. uh, which i think what they're trying to do and, and and I can't tell what the results are. Nobody can. It's a very mysterious situation. Yeah. But I do worry down the road about some other countries. Well, you know, Just Hiroshima didn't have an option to retaliate with. No one had an option to retaliate with that amount of well, force. Well, that's that's what that's why you want to see the problem coming down the pike so, and yeah. deal with it before people. Have yeah. Them. If if they if if they announce that their intent is your elimination, then I think we have to uh, yeah. take that seriously. It's like a game of risk. Yeah, I, I think uh, right. you know. I think someone's it's a, telling it's a, it's you like I'm terrible. gonna move my my army and attack you next turn, and then you're just like, are you gonna sit there and take it? Or are you gonna? I mean, I think yourself? I think we have. Uh, it's always dangerous when America gets sort of uh, you know its defenses down. I think the only thing that's kept the peace more or less is is a, is a very strong America that was the world's policeman. Yeah, I think it always sounds great, you know, withdraw and it's not our responsibility. Except the world gets worse. Yeah. <laughs> So we need to be the babysitter, basically. It's a very interesting place that we live in. Because at the same time, all the people who live in America are chasing this sense of celebrity, like you were saying earlier. But at the same time, have to have the sense and awareness of the outside world that is outside their own world. Um, because if you don't, then it's just like you're going to be so lost. And so it's you, you're not even going to be actually living like I feel like you're just going to be so, so out of it. Um but I wanted to ask you about your house. He has a super nice house, dude. Like yeah, I, no, I went to go visit his house, and then I looked you up, and then your house I, is yeah, like popular as well. Your house is fa more famous. That's a strange house. Right? It's like it is unusual. It's the most levels of any house in Los Angeles. It's eight yeah. levels. Eight levels. Eight well. levels. But the point is that that it's uh, a part of the reason the house looks on the outside. I've had a lot of press on the house over the years. One of my proudest articles was in uh, Zillow, which says, and I remember exactly, it says that Diddy wants to party at this house, but the owner would rather sit alone in his nightclub listening to Beethoven. And, <laughs> and, and I think that summed up a bit how my life is, which is that Sorry, Diddy. I, made a, I made a house where I could retreat. But all the things, problems we're talking about, trust me, they get to me like it get to anybody else. Yeah. And uh, I made a house where I could you know, try as much to create my own amusement without having to go out that much because I didn't really go, I enjoy going out that much. I'm a guy who clearly doesn't go to sports yeah. and um, doesn't really, you know, I mean, I just, there's a lot I don't participate in because it just doesn't interest me. Um, and I used my house, when I came into the house, it was actually two levels in the loft 
And as I became a photographer, I realized I needed a studio. But then I thought to myself, like hell, I'm not going to get up in the morning and go you know, in traffic downtown. And I <laughs> yeah. had these visions that I'd be mugged and murdered because yeah. it was frightening me downtown. It was like full of warehouses and a lot of bums on the street. And I really yeah. didn't like it. And I still yeah. don't. And I know it's got better, but it's not yeah. what I want to do. And even if it was wonderful, I wouldn't want to commute. Right. And, and, I, and I therefore said to myself, well, I'm just not going to do it. And um, so I said, I'll better build my own studio here. And I managed to get planning permission to, to build one level. And then I managed to get another level and another level. And I, yeah. I got away with quite a lot. And wow. uh, I guess the city doesn't know everything I've done either. <laughs> <laughs> so please don't yeah, tell them. Yeah, no, <laughs> they, don't, they don't have to know. They but don't in general, I, the thing that I look back on uh, that is clearly uh, the, the, where the house sort of symbolizes is that I could not be stopped. In my case, and, and again, I know motivated people in many areas where, you know, marathon runners, people who climb Everest and, you know, people risk their lives and people have immense inner drive and they cannot be stopped. As I got better at photography, I could not be stopped. I mean, I just needed another room or I just needed another setting. And I, if I could get it and I could borrow the money to build another level, I went for it because I yeah. said I cannot be limited. Yeah. And I kept on building because I kept on shooting and I needed clever backgrounds and the conditions to do things. Had I gone downtown or to Van Nuys and gone to a warehouse, I would have created nothing. Mm. I would never have been a photographer. Mm. So the house, in a sense, is like a living, breathing you know, entity that's yeah. made me me. We're almost you know, indivisible. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, people have commented on that. It's like it, it's, it, it, it shaped me. Wow. So you're you and the house are attached at the hip at this point. You're not well, after gonna... all these years, I'm ready to let go because I've been there 30 uh, years. Probably, really? Uh, and I've stopped shooting, so all the things that are in the house no longer yeah. have the same thing. But I'm still not a party animal. I have what looks the outside world like a big party house. Yeah. But the truth is I don't enjoy that because when people come, it's like it's a real burden being a host. Yeah, everybody it is. wants a tour and everybody wants to take drugs and yeah. everybody falls down the stairs and gets drunk and drops uh, their glasses and keeps on asking me about, you know, you know, can I hook them up? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. not fun for me at all. Yeah. So, yeah. so I'm actually very quiet about it. But I, but artistically, it had a huge impact on my life. That yeah. house became my studio in which I lived and breathed and shot everything. And so much of my work, you know, you couldn't do it on the clock. You couldn't turn up to a studio and say, well, today I'm going to shoot something clever artistic. Right. It, it just happened, you know, right. it would be in the middle of the night, inspirations and certain circumstances where things just evolved mm -hmm. that would not have happened in another environment. Yeah, it's because like it was that. safe, and it was yeah. because I could draw yours. different things, and, and I'd sort of created the conditions to be able mm -hmm. to do things. Now, most people wouldn't do that, but uh, and uh, and I took risks, and I had you know I had weekends where I couldn't buy a cup of coffee. Mm. I assure you, it wasn't mm. you know it's never, uh, I, but I couldn't be stopped. Yeah, and I'd borrow and push for what I could get in order to do what seems to have been something that was in my head that was you know, until it was completed couldn't be stopped. It was yeah. like really, it was like a form of addiction madness whatever drives artists mm. yeah mm. um i i saw one yesterday um the new world i i looked at that that uh series of photos mm. and mm. it was i mean honestly one of the coolest things i've ever seen because it's like a circular thing and it honestly looked like coffee and creamer <laughs> has been spilled <laughs> on this table 
and then you start like sliding through the differences and it's like you change the color palettes and then it's like suddenly you start seeing like an actual image of like a restaurant and then all of a sudden it's like it changes and then it's like a party atmosphere with all these lights and it's very visual like your mind just starts to like capture images that that you see even though it's just it's just this blend of random things well, you, you have do. to have a certain half part of you it has to be have a silly sense of humor yeah. I mean, it's not, you know, I've done serious work, but with a great silly sense of humor yeah. and, and mischievousness and childlike sense of wonder and, and an absurdity. I had done this whole range of cosmic things where I kept, what I, if, if anybody looks at my work, I don't like to, obviously, it's like David Copperfield, you don't want to give away, or you, don't, you don't immediately, when you've had a show, take everybody back and explain how you do it. <laughs> yeah. It's not quite how right, So right. there's a joy in sort of a bit of mystery, but, but. I can tell you that if anybody looks at that site and all my cosmic stuff, it's all done chiefly with glass and acrylic and with me seeing patterns in objects and then playing with those patterns under different conditions. Sometimes I might in, you know, have some water that's sprayed onto the thing. I was, in one case, uh, you know, some just uh, some moisturizer or something, you know, texture, some liquid, whatever it is. And, and funny things happen if you, if you play, <laughs> you know, yeah. just unusual things would happen. In the case of that series, The New World, I had done a lot of cosmic things, you know, nebulas and galaxies and lunar surface and margin landscape and lots of things, Big Bang and subatomic particle. These are all sort of from the macro to the micro, if you like, of, of outer space. And I thought, well, I, I better have a world. I haven't got a world. I haven't got a planet. Yeah. So I, I, my mind would say, well, how do I create a planet? And it starts from there. Yeah. And it was actually surprisingly easy, um, but it just looks difficult. <laughs> <laughs> I believe you. No, because it honestly was one of my favorites. Like, I was looking through a lot. I, I we didn't know about the second website um, with the other stuff, but that first. No, one I'm with currently the- looking at that. I I really <laughs> dig the figurative art collection, especially uh, specifically Danya and the Opaque Lovers. That's really cool. Is that all blacklight? Opaque lovers. That was one of my early ones. Well, I would say this. I've done. I've done them probably the most complex um, photography ever done in uh, with body painted subjects. Now, that's that's not meant as a boast. It's it's just that most people don't do complex. What, yeah. What, yeah. The reason is it's it's really how my mind works. So what happens? Let's say I'm f- I I I've, I've got a girl. I I only shoot girls. Okay. So I've yeah. got a girl who's been painted. Whatever a harlequin. Or, or, or whatever, or a tiger, whatever. Now, she's yeah. buck naked because if you put, it's not because I want nudity. Right. Strange enough, it's a bit irritating for me in these things, but you've got to think of, you've got, always got to think of what's the alternative. You put panties and bra on a tiger and a harlequin, it's going to look stupid. <laughs> it's going okay? to look stupid. So, so, so what most people who get body painted, they don't have any clothes on. And, and then the question was, well, what happens then is most photographers are not exposed to this type of thing. So they get mm-hmm. terribly excited. Oh, my God, I can't believe how yeah. beautiful you've been painted by the artist, you see. And I have to capture you, so you know, like, well, I wasn't like that. So I would like, with my mischievous way, I would get the body painter together with a model who I hadn't met mm. at the very beginning of the shoot. And I'd say, right in their face, I'd say to the artist, I'm not here to represent your art. Right. And I'd say to the model, I'm not here to represent you painted by this very nice man. Yeah. We are here to create something that nobody's ever seen before that we right. have to create out of our various skills. Now, that that meant that everything that I did would therefore would not be 
based on the idea of, oh, you've been painted beautifully by him and therefore I have to capture you. She's just lost in the picture as much as he's lost, as much as I'm lost. Yeah. Right. And you have to create something out of that using all the tricks. And I began to develop a series of tricks. I, I played with filters, I played with gels, I played with all sorts of things that, ha that make a different, completely different image from what you've seen before. But yeah. coming back to something I was just touching on there, which is about seeing something you haven't seen before, I had again, and this comes back to character, if you like, not to say that my character is better than anybody else's, but I have mm -hmm. bedrock things by which I have lived that if you live with them are very empowering. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm literate enough to take a good quote from many sources, and I don't care whether it's the New Testament, the Old Testament, Shakespeare, Homer, whoever yeah. it is. Okay, but one of my favorite quotes comes from Gladiator. So you've got a contemporary film. There's a number of contemporary films that, that I take, yeah. well, and, and classical films that I, that I take things from. But there's a wonderful thing in Gladiator, and everybody of your, of your listeners would know it, where, where Maximus is told he's going to go and fight in the Colosseum, which is the Super Bowl for gladiators. And his boss, Proximo, says to him, I was a gladiator myself once. And Russell Crowe doesn't seem to know, which is a, probably not very good screenwriting, yeah. by the way, because he would know. And, and he says, but I wasn't the best because I killed quickly. I was the best because the crowd loved me and you have to win the crowd. But then Russell Crowe's response is a very interesting response that's been a very big effect in my life, and I'm not kidding. He says, I will give the crowd something they have never seen before. Mm. Now, every time I shot mm. a creative piece of work with a human being, whether it was the body painter or, or with a girl model, mm -hmm. I would give that quote to them. I said, there is no point in us doing this unless we're going to do something that's never been seen before. Yeah. And, th and that way, first of all, I stuck to a sort of a level, if you like, of a standard for myself. It, it helped me have a standard. I don't have my parents around. I don't have some cheering audience. Right. It's just me. It's a very right. solitary experience. So I have to adhere to certain standards. And how can I keep those standards going? Well, I, my test was that you have to create something as nobody's ever seen before. So in other words, it pushed me to have a high standard. Hmm. And the second thing is what it inspired other people. Because I was able to say to them, we're going to create something. This is our mission. Something that nobody's ever seen before. If you give a very elevated concept to people, they will rise to the occasion. And that, I think, is to do with character and values. I think these things are really important. And, and, and all of my shooting was done in artistic based on that one single quote. Wow, it's a good quote, man. It's yeah. a really good quote. I love that. I like it. I was sucked into that. You're a really good storyteller. I will say that you're a very magnificent. Have you considered doing voiceover? No, yeah, I don't just... actually like the sound of my voice any more than if you look at my publicity pictures, you'll never see me without gla dark glasses, and and people will think, well, that's affected, you know, like some movie stars or things. But I can understand a little bit that very interesting thing that again, I'm not sure that people who are not in Hollywood or you know read as much perhaps about mm -hmm. movie actors and actresses is a, the way they see themselves is very different from the way you see them so yeah. when I was growing up the world's most romantic beautifully spoken actor was Richard Burton for example and mm. I could quote you many actors but Richard Burton's are not a bad example a lot of people wouldn't remember him but he was in his time the most famous highly paid and romantic and actor in the world he made I believe 157 movies I don't believe he saw any of them mm. he could not physically stand to see himself or listen to himself mm. and yet Everybody loved Richard Burton for his looks and for his beautiful voice. Mm. Now, I have a certain feeling about that exactly myself. I can't stand hearing myself speak, and I don't like looking at myself in pictures. Mm -hmm. So I wear dark glasses as a sort of, a, I feel okay with that. Mirror glasses. About, yeah. And that's really, and I, when people ask me, if somebody the other night, could they take a picture of me? I was very uncomfortable. I didn't want to do it. 
Okay. Well, that's good to know. Cause I have to tell models from time to time. You know, I turn a lot of people down because I don't think they're photogenic. Well, I apply the same standards to myself yeah. as I do to them. Yeah. I, don't, I don't think I'm photogenic, so I don't feel like being in a picture. So well, sorry. We usually post videos of our guests just talking about their. Yeah, their like, I'll put back dark glasses. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, great. Let's keep it real. I was yeah. also gonna tell you what you could do is say like swipe to the right and then we'll put some of your photography on there, different from sure. your cosmic yeah, and then yeah. your other. If that's or okay, put a link to the or swipe three up. sites. Yeah, well, we'll yeah, put the yeah. links on there. But on, and anybody on who Instagram, wants to write to me it. and you know they yeah. can contact me through the sites and ask yeah. you know ask me any questions yeah. how you did it or I like giving advice. What is your personal? Yeah, what is your personal Instagram? And all that. What's all your information? Yeah. How can people reach you? Yeah. Well, I don't publicize myself that much, so it, I, I haven't. I haven't. I never was looking for work, so I. I don't. Um, I think my last Instagram posting was about a year ago. But that's. Uh, so my Instagram is um, is only glamour stuff. So that's at Plaza Drive Shooter. At Plaza at Drive Plaza Shooter. Drive Shooter. And um, but the my three websites. My glamour site is rfmodelphotography.com. And that's a very big site. There's a lot of articles on me which which do explain how I thought about why I did these things, and and more than on the artistic sites where I don't have articles about me. And then the uh, the figurative artistic site, site with women artistically, is rfphotoarts a r t s dot com, and my cosmic site is richardfranklinphotography.com. dot uh, There we go. We got you logged plug. in. Yeah, no, we <laughs> we love shameless plugs here. We're all about that, and we're glad you had you know the time to dedicate to us and our podcast. We appreciate it. Our viewers, we've, we've roamed all listeners. over the place from photography. To, yeah, we to we cover everything. To, I told to you it was going to be just to, casual yeah, conversation. Always fun <laughs> to do that to roam around, you, you know, because that's what life is. Is that exactly you know, again? None of my what I did say about on my photography that was very important to me. And coming back again to character, I think that the great problem in America is there's not enough cultural literacy. The more knowledge you have about other people's lives and literature and art and philosophy, the more you'll have to draw on of things in your daily life that will empower you. I, my, a lot, all my figurative art, if you have a look at it with women, is very elevated concepts that had I not been exposed to elevated concepts, I couldn't have done. So, for example, ballet or or you know, classical musical instruments, or uh, um, harlequins, which are classic American, uh, Italian clown, or geishas. And all of these things are important. So knowledge, for its own sake, is a beautiful thing. The geisha series was really cool. Is she like a ballerina or something? That was a girlfriend of mine, black, uh, black girl, which is very, very unusual flexible. for a geisha, because it was very, I don't know black geishas. But what's fun about that site, where yeah. I will, if, I, if you've got a second, I will yeah. spill the beans on that one. We got plenty of When you look seconds. at that site, that's a, anybody wants to look at that, that's on my rfphotoarts.com, yeah. and it's a geisha. Now, that's me really having mischievous fun. Yeah. What, it do, what, it, what those pictures convey, which is important to me, is it, when you look at it, to the average person, it says, what a lovely, elegant geisha. Now, the right. average person hasn't got a clue any more than I do really much about a geisha. If you really break it down, we've heard the word and we think it's, a, you know, it's some Japanese woman who's dressed in a certain way, but we don't really know very much about that. I, and I certainly don't. And I didn't study it when I did the picture. But what you've got is the essence of geisha and you sort of say geisha, but what you've really got is, a, first of all, a black girl. Second of all, She's got Which you of, can't she's tell. Got none, she's got none of the things on that that are our geisha. Classical she's wearing, she's wearing a Japanese bathrobe. She's wearing, I didn't know what to put on her black feet. So I put <laughs> my white Adidas socks and I didn't know what to put on her legs. 
And so I, she's wearing my makeup artist MC Hammer pants from 20 years ago. Yeah. And you look at the series, and it looks like marvelous Japanese traditional. Yeah, it literally uh, looks so legit. Where, I was going to say something I'm very proud of because it really messes with your head because you look at it, and I don't usually, I don't think I've ever told anybody publicly how uh, uh, those things. But you know, the idea that you look at her, that I had to think, what can I put on her feet? Yeah. And what yeah. can I put? <laughs> and the rest of her, you know, well, her face was totally white. That's yeah. what I say about her black legs. It would have been such a contrast. Yeah, and 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 at the same time, I had to cover her hands with gloves, and then the whole thing was, you know, I wanted to give this illusion of geisha, and it had to be something that you know was elevated. Yeah. But the truth is, what it really is, and this is the anarchistic point of view, my 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 part of me that likes to attack things, yeah. sacred cows, and take them apart, is that you people would say, what a lovely geisha, but the truth is, it's it's breaking down. A geisha completely. It's not a geisha at all. It's Adidas yeah. socks and MC Hammer pants yeah. and a Japanese bathrobe and a black girl. But at the same time, it has all the elegance. Yeah, it's all the nice feeling. And so it's, to me, it was a serious piece of art because it has conveys a certain yeah. elevated feeling. But in fact, it's thoroughly mischievous and nothing to do with what you think it is at all. Well, uh, it's a great uh, personal interpretation that I think you came out with. Because right, I, I exactly. we were just looking at it and it's freaking beautiful. Like, <clears throat> I it, think it's, it's cool. beautiful. It's I was down by phenomenal. my pool in the middle of the night. Yeah. With, uh, and so the reason that, again, it's a good illustration also about the, my house because yeah. I built a, my, over my pool. Yeah. I took the trouble to build piping that allowed me to have water coming down like a waterfall nice. so i could do shoots like that so when you look at the shoot water is comes up and shows itself when you light it from the back not from the front yeah so i lit that shot with you know four lights two on each side that were with red gels so you see nothing but a, a yeah. beautiful waterfall of red uh water and yeah. that made that effect that's cool. That's awesome. It's yeah, background so this is, is background inside is just information. As as I know. He's like, this is the top secret vault stuff, guys. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I saved it to the end. Yeah. <laughs> yes, don't tell anyone. All right, we'll we'll, we'll, we'll not, stop spilling your yes, secrets yes, now. Yes, you've heard this tape, <laughs> <laughs> destruct, it will destruct it in five will. seconds. <laughs> and all this information will disappear. Well, there you have it, folks. Yeah. We had an awesome episode. That was episode 14 for yes. you, Richard Franklin. Yeah, he is pleasure. a legend. I mean, he plays, is. books, photography. Photography, like insight, wisdom, playboyism. Yeah, tell my parents, please. <laughs> <laughs> they don't know. International yeah. Playboy Man of Mystery, wish, Richard Franklin. Awesome guy. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. It was very nice. And good luck to both of you. Yeah. Yeah. We'll catch you guys on the next nice. episode. Peace. Peace.